0: Well, as Jim mentioned, Pastor Williams, uh, his plan this last week was to take some vacation days, which turned into sick days, so I know he would certainly appreciate your prayers for speedy recovery. Our text this morning that we'll be considering is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 982. Before reading from God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this glorious day in which we can gather as your called out people to give our worship to you and pray that as we consider this text together this morning, that hearts that are filled with trouble, filled with anxiety and worry and fear would see the glorious news of the gospel and rest and rejoice in the Lord, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4, reading through verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. And when we gather together on a Sunday, we hear of the glorious nature of the gospel. No matter what text we might be considering together on a Sunday morning, whether from the Old Testament or the New, we know that Christ will be proclaimed. And we draw great comfort from God's Word. We feel that appropriate conviction as the Holy Spirit takes the Word of the Lord and uses it to expose the deep recesses of our hearts. We sing praises to our great God and we delight to do so in joy. We long to bring our needs before Him in prayer. In many ways, our gathering on a Sunday morning helps to continually reorient the heart and the mind back to where it ought to be, sort of like a recalibrating of the soul as it gets disjointed and off-kilter throughout our week from all of the worries, anxieties, and fears that bombard us. We know that the gospel should bring lasting sustaining joy and peace. And yet we really have plenty of reasons to worry. And the church in Philippi had plenty of reasons to worry. When Paul and Silas first went to the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16, proclaiming boldly the message of the gospel through the power of Christ bringing healing to those who were ailing, they were flogged, beaten, and thrown in prison. No doubt those who had such violent response to the gospel remained in the town of Philippi for the church to continue to contend with. Now, we may not be publicly flogged for our profession of faith in Christ, but people certainly dislike your allegiance to Jesus. They see it as a threat to the agenda of tolerance and unity. Dennis Johnson comments that even mild opposition can intimidate and silence us. And so it's our Christian identity itself that can be a source of anxiety, worry, and fear. And the church in Philippi was called to give generously to those who had needs. Paul commends the church for supporting his ministry financially, he commends them for using their financial gifts to help those who had greater needs than their own, and he encourages them to do so in the days ahead. And for us, certainly finances can be a great source of worry. Do I have enough to make it through the month? Do I have enough to get the kids through college? Perhaps just to get the kids through diapers? What about making sure that I have enough for a comfortable retirement? What about those unforeseen expenses that seem to come up every couple of months, whether medical or auto or home repairs? or take conflict and division in relationships as a source of anxiety and worry. Paul addresses this throughout the letter as he calls the church to live in gospel unity, as he calls them to consider the needs of others more significant than your own. He even addresses in a couple verses before that, which we read in chapter 4, verse 2, to Yodia and Syntyche who were filled with division, and he calls them to live in gospel unity. Perhaps in your own life, there's those conversations with others that seem to always digress into division and anger. Perhaps a friend seems distant because of some sort of misunderstanding that has gone on and unresolved. Perhaps unfaithfulness on the part of one close to you and has led to untold heartache and pain. The church in Philippi had plenty to worry about. We have plenty to worry about. The commands that we find in these few short verses are meant to offer loving exhortation and great encouragement. These few verses describe for us what gospel living should look like, what the life of the believer should look like, the one who is governed by the good news of Christ Jesus. Here is the calling before us. First, this morning, gospel living looks like focusing upon the Lord, focusing upon our God. Notice that we are to focus first upon Him as the source of our joy. The first command that Paul gives in verse 4 is very clear. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again in case you missed the central importance of this command. Rejoice. Now, throughout the Bible... Literally hundreds of times, the believer is called to put his joy in the Lord, to rejoice in the goodness of our God. Time and again, God's people are called to delight in Him. First Chronicles sixteen thirty one. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm five verse eleven. But let all who take refuge in You rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 13, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 31, verse 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels." Even here in this short book, this letter to the church in Philippi, a book that we could call a book of joy, there is this call to rejoice throughout the letter. Paul speaks frequently of his great affection for the church. He rejoices in God's faithfulness to work among them as they grow in their love and affection for the Lord and for one another. Paul rejoices in the fact that Christ is proclaimed even in the midst of his hardships and trials. Even in a Roman prison, he is enabled to rejoice as he sees the gospel continue to be spread. He rejoices in the reality that the Lord answers prayer. Paul looks at very specific ways in which God has answered those prayers, and he rejoices in God's goodness. Paul has confidence in his standing before the Lord. He knows that if this imprisonment leads even to death, he will rejoice for he will be in the presence of, Of the living Christ. A sermon I heard a number of years ago by Sinclair Ferguson on Ephesians chapter 6 made this point that has always stood with me, stuck with me, that Satan knows that he cannot change the status of God's children. He knows enough about the Bible to know the promises that are made to us, his people, that we cannot change from being a child of the living God. But he will do all that he can. To rob us of joy and delight, to make us ineffective in gospel living. He loves for you to be filled with fear, worry, and anxiety. The joy that we are called to exhibit, the joy that ought to characterize the Christian life, is not one that ignores the reality of hardships in this world. We are not talking about some form of Christian stoicism in which we are sort of supposed to muster a stiff upper lip. We're not talking about living in blissful ignorance of the harsh realities of life. But instead we're talking about cultivating a sustainable joy in the midst of our struggles as we experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ working in our lives. Too often, I think we equate joy with our circumstances. When the bills are paid for the month and I have a little bit extra, then I'm a joyful person. When the people around me all do the things that I want them to do, I'm a joyful person. When I have a period of good health or compliant children, I'm a joyful person. But the key to a life of Christian contentment and joy is not to avoid difficulties, But finding that Christ is sufficient for all we need is Him in the midst of our difficulties. The familiar passage from Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 reads, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What Habakkuk says, what Paul says here is that the source of our joy is to be the Lord God himself, not the circumstances in our lives which are subject to constant change, not our emotions which are in continual flux, but the immovable, unchangeable God is the one who is to be the source of our joy and delight. And what is it about the Lord himself that is our joy? What is it about our God that could cause us, that calls us to rejoice in him? Well, there are so many things that we could think about, but the most obvious is the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins, justifying grace, peace that we have with God. This aids and feeds this sustainable joy that we are to strive for. And further, we could say the continual presence of the Lord with his people, we know that God is omnipresent, but there's a sense in which we, as God's people, are called to learn to live out of that reality. Psalm 105, at verse 4 says, seek his presence continually. Learn to live out of the reality of the ongoing presence of the Lord. We can delight and rejoice in his covenant promises, the faithfulness to make good upon those promises from one generation to the next. We can rejoice in the fact that we know the living God, that he knows us, sins and faults and failures and all, and yet continues to love us through Christ Jesus. Someone has put it like this, that joy is not so much a spontaneous emotion as a response formed in those who can read the economy of God's activity in particular ways and are able to act in conformity with his unfolding plan. Joy is the appropriate response when one rightly perceives the unfolding of God's plan of salvation, even in the midst of suffering and opposition. And so our joy, our rejoicing, is to be in the Lord Himself. And we are told further that the nature of joy is to be perpetual. We are to rejoice, not merely at certain times in life, but we are to rejoice in the Lord always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 reads very simply, rejoice always. Paul's point here could not be clearer. Joy should be one of the defining marks of a believer, regardless of circumstances. Again, Dennis Johnson, he says, to rejoice in the Lord is to resist the instinct to focus on visible pleasures or visible problems. We are to treasure Christ until we are fully persuaded that he really is all we need in every situation. Rejoice in the Lord always for he will never abandon us or forsake us. His presence is always with us. His covenant promises are unchangeable. We have the privilege of knowing and being known by the living God. And so the Lord is our source of joy The nature of this joy is to be perpetual. And this joy should be, verse 5, evidence. Let your gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You see, we bear witness to our union with Christ as we learn to develop a gentle or forbearing spirit, especially in the midst of conflict when our tendency is to insist that we are heard clearly, that our rights are perceived. Instead, a gentle spirit is one that reflects a joyful trust in the Lord. A gentle spirit is more concerned with the glory of God than it is making sure that my voice is heard. Gentleness does not mean tolerance of wickedness or of evil, but it means learning to be patient with all. Patient with the one who is immature, the one who is weak, and the one who is struggling. Gentleness means seeking peace by striving to resolve disputes seeking to bring restoration where there is brokenness and if it is a gentleness that is to be evident toward everyone that means even patience with those who do not know the lord jesus christ because without his sovereign work of grace in our own lives we would be lost and undone and paul says in ephesians 4:32 be kind to one another tender hearted Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, what is the motive for this? Why should we live in this manner? Why should we seek to live in a manner that focuses upon the Lord and not the self? Because, again, as we read in verse 5, the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near. Well, in what sense does Paul mean that the Lord is near? Well, it could be a twofold way to think about this. Nearness, in terms of the presence of the Holy Spirit within the hearts and lives of God's people. Because of that nearness, we are to be people who are filled with joy. But also, we could think of this nearness in terms of the Lord's return, that the day of judgment is at hand. And we are called to live in light of that coming reality with passion. And concern for those who are still under the wrath of God, calling them to faith and repentance. And so we are not to live with an insistence upon our own perceived rights, but to live in a trusting manner in the return of our Savior when all things will be made right. And so the Lord himself is the source of our joy. This joy is to be a perpetual thing evident in the life of the the believer because the Lord is near near in his presence and near in his coming. Gospel living means focusing upon the Lord. Second, gospel living means praying about everything. We see this in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We could think of it as sort of a putting off and putting on putting off anxious hearts, putting off restless and agitated minds that instead to put on a prayerful and thankful heart. And all of those things that tend to dominate the landscape of our minds can very easily push out our focus, which is to be upon the joy of the Lord. Listen to how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I understand this barrier between the creator and the creature. I rest in my own finitude and delight in the infinite nature of God. I have calmed and quieted my soul, the psalmist says, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And so where we tend toward anxious minds and hearts, the call of this passage is to rejoice in the Lord and not to be anxious about anything. Now that's a pretty big command. And this is not a suggestion. This is not for those who are just wired with a certain type of temperament or who are going through certain circumstances that are a little bit more manageable than someone else. But this is an all-encompassing imperative. Now, there's all sorts of advice out there in the world on how to not be anxious. There was a study done at Penn State a number of years ago, a study on dealing with worry and anxiety. And here are some conclusions from the university study. We could call these scientific ways to stop worrying. Carve out time each day to worry. a designated worry time. Instead of worrying all day, designate 30 minutes to think about your problems. Make a point to think of something else if you start worrying during a non-designated worry time. (laughs) Does that sound helpful? Make an appointment for worry, and if worry shows up early, say, hey, you're not on the schedule. (laughs) Well, here's another. Accept worry and move on worrying about worry is a dangerous cycle to fall in. Just accept that you are a worrier. Is that helpful to just sort of resign yourself to the fact that you are a worrier? You can't do anything about it anyway, so stop worrying about worry. (laughs) Well, here's another. Write down your worries. I suppose that could be helpful. Then they're staring you in the face all the time. (laughs) Or finally, cut yourself some slack. Is the goal to live forever? stop worrying. You're going to die eventually anyway. (laughs) Now, these are all superficial techniques, and these obviously do not get at the heart of the problem. Someone has remarked that our anxiety is not the result of failed problem-solving strategies. It is the result of misplaced trust. It's either trust in our own abilities or trust in our own self-sufficiency instead of trust in the Lord. Now, the church in Philippi, as I mentioned, they faced the reality of many trials, opposition from those outside of the church, danger of false teachers creeping in among them, the reality of conflict and division among them, even those who were outspoken enemies of the message of the cross. Anxious and worrisome thoughts are always justified in our own minds and yet we are warned against this kind of response turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 this portion of the sermon on the mount in which Jesus speaks directly to those who are anxious with the cares of this world Matthew chapter 6 beginning of verse 25 and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here are some things that our Lord teaches us to help us to learn to rest in him. Remember the Father's love for His people, verse 25 and 26. He cares for the lowly sparrow. How much more will He care for you? Remember God's sovereignty, verse 27. Our days are numbered in the hands of the Lord. No amount of worry can add even a single moment to our lives. Remember God's provision, verses 28 through 30. From the flowers to the grass of the field, Consider the Lord's provision for your own needs. And then learn to live for eternity, verses 31 through 34. Do not be overly concerned for the cares of this world, because your status as a child of God is secure. And so pursue the righteousness of God. When you doubt the absolute sovereign control of God, when you question His infinite wisdom... When you wonder whether he has lasting and unchanging love for you, then anxiety, fears, and worries, and distrust begin to take root within your heart. You see, anxieties, those anxious thoughts that fill our minds and hearts, they are at their most fundamental level. They are not horizontal in nature. They are not connected to our circumstances or people, but they are vertical in their dimension. Now, Paul is not simplistically saying, like the Penn State study, just stop being anxious. But he goes on, let your requests be made known to God. Our loving God is fully aware of all of our concerns. But as we learn to take such things to him in prayer, that enables us to grow in dependent hope and joyful trust toward the one who is sovereign over all things. And so, if the command is not to be anxious about anything, then that means that anything that might cause those anxious thoughts to begin to creep up in our minds, those are the things that we are to take to the Lord in prayer. And notice the pastoral guidance that Paul offers here in verse 6 about the way in which we are to pray, how to bring these requests to God. In everything by prayer. In other words, regardless of the circumstances in life, bring such things to him in prayer. Now, you know this tendency in your own life, how those worries and fears typically start as something small and then escalate into things that are much larger. The calling is for us to take all of such things to the Lord, to pray to him, to ask him to root such things out from our hearts before they become overwhelming and life-dominating concerns not only take everything to the Lord in prayer, but to take it with thanksgiving. This is the posture or the attitude that we ought to display when we come to God. Consider how you oftentimes, especially in the midst of those great hardships, how you may come to the Lord with an entitlement toward Him, with a demanding heart or a frustrated demeanor. Instead, we should have a spirit of gratitude. An attitude of thanksgiving, not merely when things are going well, but again, with this all inclusive vocabulary, there ought to be thanksgiving at all times. And why? Because we belong to a God who is sovereign, we belong to a God who is faithful, who is wise, who is good, who is loving, who is generous. And so, as we make requests with an attitude of thanksgiving, that means that we have confidence in his ability to answer and to do that which is most glorifying to his name. One commentator I read said that a prayerless life is a sign of a self sufficient person, a prayerful life is a sign of a God dependent person. Think of your own life for just a moment. Are you grateful to God? Is there gratitude at every point? If not, then you can be pretty sure that you are nurturing a spirit of ingratitude, leading potentially to rebellion. There are no qualifiers here, as though certain circumstances are allowable for us to grumble and be discontent about. Earlier in Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning how can we foster an attitude of thanksgiving? Well, by remembering. By remembering who we were in our rebellion against the Lord. By remembering what He has done to save us from that rebellion and defilement. Remembering who we were apart from His sovereign work of grace. Being mindful of His love and mercy for you. And then Paul goes on, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, it might seem to go without saying that we should take all of our anxieties, our requests to God. Where else would we take them? Well, perhaps our tendency might be to take our requests and needs to others, to complain about the hardships of life, to murmur and grumble about the trials that we are going through. As we do that, that has the, has the potential of adding to our self-pity if we do not direct our requests toward God. The text that we looked at last Sunday evening was from 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The Lord is worthy to take such things upon himself. The Lord calls his children to come and to cast all of those things upon him. He has the ability to bear all of our burdens, and he longs for us to come to him in prayer. And third, and finally, in verse 7, we see the wondrous result. The wondrous result of focusing upon the Lord and praying about everything. It is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so here is the result of taking all things to the Lord. Here is the result of learning this dependent trust upon Him, that we can actually learn peace now, in the present, even in the midst of hardships, not only in the life to come. Notice that it is a peace of God. It's a peace that comes from God Himself. He is the source of such peace. He is the one who produces such peace in the lives of His his children At best, the world offers to us temporal peace as it offers to us a comfortable life. But that is fleeting and superficial peace. The peace of God is grounded in the character of God, the one who is our loving and faithful Father. And this peace of God, we read, is something that surpasses understanding. And we're not talking here about something mystical or esoteric. But we're talking about a peace that does go far beyond our ability, oftentimes, to comprehend. It is a mysterious, not a mystical, but a mysterious peace. Because as far as the world is concerned, it makes no sense to be joyful in the midst of hardship. It makes no sense to be thankful when circumstances are trying. It makes no sense to trust to be filled with peace when it seems reasonable for anxiety to prevail. And yet for one in Christ Jesus, the active, the evident work of the Holy Spirit is to produce such a peace, a peace which in His goodness and kindness guards and protects our minds and hearts against the onslaught of such worry and distrust. And you see, we find relief from our anxious hearts and minds only in Christ Jesus. This is the eighth time in this short letter that Paul uses this phrase, in Christ Jesus, referring to our union with him. You see, it is in Christ himself that we find safety and security, the safety and security that our minds and hearts long for. Jesus himself is that stronghold, keeping our minds and hearts safe from the pressures of this world. Now, one of the most common objections that one could raise at this point is, yes, I understand, pastor, that these things are true, but you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand the difficult person that I have to live with. Well, one, my reply would be, as Jim mentioned, there's a great class in the Christian educational hour that's starting next Sunday morning. Now, that might sound like a bit of a cop-out, But to have 13 weeks dealing with primarily this text from Philippians chapter 4 helps us to understand that there is deep and rich truth that we can benefit from in discussing those things together. I'm sure Sean will appreciate the fellowship hall being packed next week. But later, if your eyes will drop down just a bit to verse 9, a verse that we didn't read this morning, it's there that Paul says... What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, imitate me. You see, Paul is giving this instruction, not from the comfortable surroundings of a pastoral study in which there's warm lighting and a nice hot cup of coffee. This is not some ivory tower instruction that's detached from real life. Paul is writing from a Roman prison, He's not sure of the outcome. He knows how those Romans operate. He knows that he could lose his life at any point. But he writes from experience. If anyone, we could say, has the right to complain about his circumstances, to be anxious and fearful, it would be him at this point in his life. And yet he has learned this trust and this dependence upon his Savior. And third, I would say that in a passage like this, That is heavy upon the imperatives. Do not lose sight of the indicative of the gospel. God commands us to live a certain way because he has made us his own through the work of Christ. He then gives us the spirit to empower us to obey these commands. The spirit uses commands like this to help us learn how to live in the gospel. Again, Dennis Johnson says, the ultimate antidote to anxiety is not to be found in what we do, but in what God has done and what he is doing in us. And let's close by considering a couple of familiar and comforting passages. First from Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then over finally to Colossians chapter 3. God the Father through him. You see, ultimately what we need is the Prince of Peace, the triune God himself, the one who is an ever-present help in times of trouble. You need to find your joy in the Lord. You need to fix your hope upon the return of Christ. And when you find yourself slipping into worry, rehearse the goodness of God. Fill your heart with truths from His Word, with hearts that are filled with thanksgiving. And so instead of allowing your mind to wander to the the if-onlys or the what-ifs, allow your heart to be overwhelmed with thanks towards the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. Your Lord is faithful. Treasure your living and loving Savior. Delight yourself in His all-sufficient grace. This is what imparts lasting joy. This is what enables us as God's people to respond in gratitude. May the Lord be pleased to take the truth of his word and to write it upon our hearts.